Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read They Can't Kill Us All, the story of the struggle for black lives by Wesley Lowry. And we are on page 85 on chapter two of this book. On our last episode, we read about the murder of Trayvon Martin. We spoke about how impactful that moment was after Trayvon Martin was murdered and some of the things that took place afterwards. We spoke about the, we read about the encounter and the confrontation that George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin had. We also read and spoke about the upbringing of Wesley Lowry and the role that the black church and black and spirituality has played in black people's experience in this country. And we spoke about the first time black people had the talk with their parents about what it meant to be black in this country as well. So before we pick back up where we left off at, at the end of the last episode, I'd like to ask people to please share this episode on whichever social media platform you frequent the most. I like to remind people that every day at eight o'clock AM, we put out a new episode of Rafa reading daily across all streaming platforms. So make sure you are on the lookout for that. And let's dive back into they can't kill us all. On the night of that decision, I was still living in Boston. The news broke on Twitter that the jury was done deliberating and that the announcement was forthcoming. Then we all saw the words, quote, not guilty, end quote. I sprang into reporter mode, one that was still new to me because I didn't know what else to do. I had to do something even if I wasn't an activist or even a normal citizen. I was a reporter. I got in my Pontiac Grand Prix and drove to a nearby church that had announced it was having a vigil. If I couldn't participate, I could at least do a few interviews and email them into the Globe's weekend editors. But by the time I had found a place to park, the vigil had concluded. I went back to my car and sat in silence as raindrops splattered on my windshield. For months, some right-wing and white supremacist groups had warned of the impending, quote, Trayvon Martin riots, end quote. They encouraged white Americans to brace for what they predicted would surely be a round of racial unrest once Zimmerman, at this point almost a folk hero, was acquitted. In a column titled, quote, What if George Zimmerman walks free, end quote, Pat Buchanan, once an advisor to Ronald Reagan, laid the blame for racial tension at the feet of alleged race baiters. It was the fault of Jesse Jackson and Maxine Waters and the New Black Panthers, an essentially non-existent group of about a half a dozen would-be radicals, and President Obama for having the audacity to sympathize with the family of a dead teenager who had been followed and killed by Zimmerman. Quote, The public mind has been so poisoned that an acquittal of George Zimmerman could ignite a reaction similar to that 20 years ago when the Simi Valley jury acquitted the LAPD cops in the Rodney King beating case, end quote, Buchanan declared. Quote, Should that happen, those who fanned the flames and those who did nothing to douse them should themselves go on trial in the public arena, end quote. Just moments after Zimmerman was found not guilty, former Speaker of the House of Representatives Newt Gingrich further fanned the hysteria. Quote, I watched these protesters, end quote, Gingrich said live on CNN, quote, none of whom read the transcript, none of whom sat through five weeks of the trial, all of whom were prepared, basically, to be a lynch mob, end quote. History, stubborn in its nuance, proved Buchanan, Gingrich, Gingrich, I don't know how you pronounce his name. He a dumbass, so I don't really care about getting his name right. 
and the rest of their lot wrong. There were no large-scale Trayvon Martin riots, and their place were vigils held throughout the country, like the one I had barely missed in Boston. Peaceful black America was awakened by the Zimmerman verdict, which reminded them anew that their lives and their bodies could be abused and destroyed without consequence. Trayvon's death epitomized the truth that the system black Americans have been told to trust was never structured to deliver justice to them. The, quote, not guilty, end quote, verdict prompted the creation of a round of boisterous and determined protest groups, most prominently the Dream Defenders and Million Hoodies Movement for Justice, both initially Florida-based, although the latter would eventually expand nationally. Across the country, at a time when Twitter had yet to become the primary platform for news consumption, a then 31-year-old activist in Oakland named Alicia Garza penned a Facebook status that soon went viral. She called the status, quote, a love note to black people, end quote. Quote, the sad part is, there's a section of America who is cheering and celebrating right now, and that makes me sick to my stomach. We gotta get it together, y'all, end quote, she wrote. Quote, stop saying we are not surprised. That's a damn shame in itself. I continue to be surprised at how little black lives matter, and I will continue that. Stop giving up on black life, end quote. Quote, black people, I love you. I love us. Our lives matter, end quote, she concluded. Her friend and fellow activist Patrice Cullors found poetry in the post, extracting the phrase, quote, black lives matter end quote, and reposting the status. Soon the two women reached out to a third activist, Opal Tomate, who set up a Tumblr and Twitter account under the slogan, quote, Black Lives Matter is an ideological and political intervention in a world where black lives are systematically and intentionally targeted for demise, end quote. Garza wrote in the group's official written history of his founding, of his founding quote, It is an affirmation of black folks' contribution to this society, our humanity, and our resilience in the face of deadly oppression, end quote. While the phrase is now the name of an organization and is often used to describe the broader protest and social justice movement, Black Lives Matter is best thought of as an ideology. Its tenets have matured and expanded over time, and not all of its adherents subscribe to them in exactly the same manner, much the way an, Episcopal, an Episcopalian and a Baptist or a religious conservative and a deficit hawk could both be described as a Christian or a conservative, yet still hold disagreements over policy, tactics, and lifestyle. For the young black men and women entering the adult world during the Obama presidency, the ideology of Black Lives Matter, not yet an organization, nor a movement, carry substance, even heft. It was a message that resonated with the young black men and women who had been so outraged and pained by the Zimmerman verdict. And the decision by Tomate to focus on Twitter and Tumblr, then second-tier social media outlets, instead of Facebook, proved a stroke of strategic genius. Both networks allow for more organic, democratic growth. Unlike Facebook, in which virality is determined by algorithms, visibility on Twitter and Tumblr is determined directly by how compelling a given message post, or dispatch is. A phrase like hashtag Black Lives Matter or hashtag Ferguson or later on hashtag Baltimore Uprising can in a matter of moments transform from a singular sentence typed on an individual user's iPhone into an internationally trending topic. 
Hashtag Black Lives Matter didn't catch on immediately, but his time would soon come. As writer and historian Jelani Cole wrote in The New Yorker, in what remains one of the definitive profiles of the creation of the organization now known nationally as Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Quote, Black Lives Matter didn't reach a wider public until the following summer when a police officer named Darren Wilson shot and killed 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson. Darnell Moore, Darnell Moore, a writer and activist based in Brooklyn who knew colors, coordinated, quote, freedom rides, end quote, to Missouri from New York, Chicago, Portland, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and Boston. Within a few weeks of Brown's death, hundreds of people who had never participated in organized protest took to the streets, and that campaign eventually exposed Ferguson as a case study of structural racism in America and a metaphor for all that had gone wrong since the end of the civil rights movement, end quote. Many of the local organizers were excited to have reinforcements. They had been out in the streets for days, launching organizations such as Hands Up United and Millennial Activists United. The Black Lives Matter rides had brought fresh bodies for the protest lines and fresh voices for the megaphones. But they had also brought with them crowds of outsiders who hadn't been in these streets, whose eyes and tongues had yet to feel the bitter sting of tear gas. That tension between veterans and newcomers would eventually play out not only in cities like St. Louis and Cleveland, but also on a national stage, as the media began attempting to define the contours of the protest movement and appoint leaders. Even before the out-of-town buses had arrived, the Ferguson protesters had begun using the chant, hashtag Black Lives Matter, and were punctuating the hundreds of tweets that some of them were sending each day with the hashtag. That hashtag, linked in the minds of its creators to their group and their network, inevitably took on a life of its own and became a mantle under which thousands of demonstrators activists and groups began protesting both online and in the streets. Whether they wanted or intended it, the protest movement was being identified as the quote, Black Lives Matter movement, end quote, by the media, myself included, before most of us appreciated the difference between the rallying cry and the organization that preceded it. This conflation became even more complicated once the hashtag Black Lives Matter group founded by Garza, Colors, and Tomate began spawning chapters and organizing a more formal network of allies. Black Lives Matter was now a widely adopted slogan, a, quote, movement, end quote, and its own organization. But that nuance and complication were lacking from nearly all media coverage, due in part to laziness, but in fact more likely because at that point in the quickly moving story of the unrest in Ferguson, few reporters, myself included, could accurately grasp what exactly was happening. Okay, let's take a moment to reflect. So I think those passages that we just read are very important in the understanding of the differences between Black Lives Matter as a rallying cry, as a, as a slogan, then separating Black Lives Matter as an ideology, then separating that Black Lives Matter as well from the organization, and then separating all three of those from the concept of Black Lives Matter as a movement. And one of the things that is used against us a lot of times in the information age is when 
it's false information or misinformation. We have so much access to information that now somebody can, the same way you can look up and, and find accurate, truthful things about something, you can also look up and find a bunch of false narratives and a bunch of half-truths about something. And that was a, and still is a regular occurrence when it comes to conversing about Black Lives Matter and when it comes to speaking about what Black Lives Matter means. And here in Rockford, Illinois, we've even distanced ourselves from the statement Black Lives Matter, not because it's not one we don't agree with, but because it becomes conflated with the organization. People at the very beginning of the May 30th Alliance inception as an organization, a lot of times people would ask us if we're Black Lives Matter or oh, your Black Lives Matter or you're funded by George Soros or are you a chapter of Black Lives Matter? And sometimes you would be positive, people coming and asking in a positive way. And sometimes there's also people coming and asking in a negative way. And so it wasn't that we felt that it was a negative uh, a negative connection to it or we felt that it was negative for us to be connected to it. It just wasn't, it wasn't accurate. And so we went out of our way to make sure people understood that no. We are the May 30th Alliance. The May 30th Alliance's tenants are deeply rooted in the issues that are going on in Winnebago County and Rockford and in local issues. It's something that was put together by people locally. It's something that is organized and ran by people locally and something that's focusing on local issues. Now, within those local issues of police terrorism and mass incarceration, also is racial injustice and racial injustice is something that the the issue of racial injustice is something that the concept and the ideology of black lives matter strongly speaks to and so i read a book which we haven't read on this podcast series but we will read in this podcast series which is entitled the purpose of power by alicia garza and she does just an excellent job of explaining the inception of black lives matter as a movement the inception of it as a ideology uh, the inception of it as an organization and it really opened up my eyes into the proper ways to articulate the differences and i think and here wesley lowry pointed out to us that there are differences but he didn't necessarily go into the minutiae of explaining those differences to us. And I, I think that one of the reasons Black Lives Matter, uh, organizationally, ideologically, as a slogan, as a movement was important is because it challenges the status quo and it challenges, it's, 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 it shouldn't be a, It shouldn't be a provocative statement, but because of how deeply rooted in racism this country is, it is a provocative provocative statement. And so I think that because of how deeply rooted this country is in racism, it needed something as bold and as strong as Black Lives Matter to challenge white supremacy and challenge white nationalism the same way we needed black power in the 60s and in the 70s as a bold statement to challenge the white nationalism and white supremacy that existed during those times. Okay, let's hop back in to They Can't Kill Us All. This reductive media coverage became a major fault line among the activists who began to bicker about when, exactly, 
this, quote, movement, end quote, had begun and who deserved credit for its inception? The three, quote, founders, end quote, or the organic protesters in places like New York and Ferguson. Quote, this conflation was cause for concern because the project was near and dear to our hearts, end quote. Colors wrote in an essay on the protest movement in February 2016, quote, as queer black women, we are often misremembered as contributors and creators of our work, a consequence of deep-seated patriarchy, sexism, and homophobia. But more importantly, this was cause for concern because movements don't belong to any one person, and we knew that this movement wasn't started by us. Its roots lie in the black organizers of centuries ago, our ancestors who, in the face of violence like chattel slavery, lynching, whipping, rape, theft, and separation of our families, fought for freedom from the state. But despite intervention after intervention with the media, they continue to conflate the two causing a fissure among some. End quote. While organizers and activists began attempting to sort this out among themselves, with tiffs at times spilling out onto social media, their supporters and the rest of the nation continued to carry their banner and express solidarity with the movement still working to find its footing and at some moments of infighting one misstep away from implosion. As of March 2016, the 10th anniversary of Twitter, the hashtag Black Lives Matter had been used more than 12 million times, the third most of any hashtag related to a social cause. Atop the list, however, sits hashtag Ferguson, the most used hashtag promoting a social cause in the history of Twitter, tweeted more than 27 million times. Quote, Hashtag Black Lives Matter would not be recognized worldwide if it weren't for the folks in St. Louis and Ferguson who put their bodies on the line day in and day out and who continue to show up for black lives, end quote, Colors wrote. Quote, and yet, we knew there was something specific about Ferguson and the efforts of the brave organizers in Ferguson that made this moment different, more radically intersectional, more attuned to the technology of our times, more in your face. Ferguson organizers shifted the energy in this country in the direction of black liberation in the same and different ways as the case of Amadou Diallo, Rodney King, Jenna Six, Troy Davis, and Trayvon Martin. End quote. The small entrance and modest selection on the ground floor of Guide to Coker are a clever mask for the Westside Cleveland Bookstore's expansive basement meeting room, which by December 2014, had for months played host to an activist collective determined to achieve police reform in this city. After curving down the stairs, you're confronted by a lounge of sorts, a series of couches covered by a canopy of cloth. Around the corner, a large meeting table that seats well more than a dozen is surrounded by thick stacks of paperbacks. Is surrounded, excuse me, let me try that again. Around the corner, a large meeting table that seats well more than a dozen is surrounded by thick stacks of paperbacks. This is where the local protest movement in Cleveland incubated. Activists from the east side and west side, young and old, gathered, at times daily, to strategize and to get to know each other. Quote, we all knew we needed to do something. We had to, do, we had to this time, end quote, said R.A. Washington a musician and poet who owns the bookstore and serves as a sort of community elder in the surrounding blocks, the first time I showed up for one of the meetings. At this point, there was no formal hashtag Black Lives Matter chapter in Cleveland. Organizers of the ongoing demonstrations held from a mishmash of other activist groups and labor organizations. 
Unlike the leadership tug-of-war that took place in Ferguson, there was no concern in Cleveland about external interlopers. Almost all of the young activists were local. On this day, a cold afternoon about three days into my trip home, a hodgepodge of activists and organizers peppered several members of the city council with questions. They had specific demands and insisted that each local official they meet, they meet complete a, quote, report card, end quote, committing to either yes or no on statements such as, quote, the officer who killed Rice should be immediately indicted, end quote. Quote, we need to show that we as young black people in Cleveland are no longer going to allow these things to happen, end quote, said Joe Worthy, a key organizer with the new Abolitionist Association one of the groups of younger protesters and activists that had driven the demonstrations here. Worthy was one of the first activists I met when I arrived home. He spoke in a sharp, polished cadence with little patience for niceties. If a council member started to wander into talking points, it was Joe who would shout him or her down and demand that he or she address the question asked. Quote, We wanted a public commitment to our demands, at least from some council members. We also wanted a public commitment to negotiate publicly to bring change, end quote. Worthy declared during the meeting, earning a round of snaps of approval, quote, these things can't be negotiated by backroom deals, end quote. <clears throat> Cleveland is built from a proud activist and civil rights tradition, with locals quick to note that it was here, partially in response to the civil rights movement, that the first black mayor of a major American city was elected. That legacy left a mosaic of community organizing groups, from those focused on black-on-black -black crime, to those left over from Occupy Wall Street, to those who have for years worked on police brutality issues. But a summit like this, featuring primarily young but also some older activists, many noted, seemed unprecedented, at least in recent local history. When Tamir Rice was killed, it seemed, activist Cleveland jolted into action. Determined to learn lessons from St. Louis and New York, top city officials in Cleveland took extremely deliberate steps in response to the renewed protests. The fact that half a dozen council members were gathered here in this bookstore basement to be peppered with questions was evidence of that. Police Chief Calvin Williams, who is black, voluntarily shut down parts of the highway so that protesters could march. Police officers working nights during many of the early demonstrations talked openly and at times joked around with demonstrators. Quote, there are things that are wrong within the Cleveland Division of Police, and we will correct them. That is my pledge to everybody, end quote. Williams vowed during a forum titled, quote, Is Cleveland the next Ferguson, end quote, that city leaders held in early December at the Word Church, the city's most influential black congregation. While, like St. Louis, Cleveland is a heavily segregated Midwestern met metropolis still battling its way out of tough economic times that have left significant portions of its black population in poverty. In many ways, Cleveland has seen a much less violent and boisterous response to the Tamir Rice shooting than Greater St. Louis did in the days after Michael Brown was killed. There have been some protests and city leaders were feeling pressure. Quote, Tamir Rice should not have been shot, end quote, Williams said, prompting applause from the crowd. Quote, it is not Tamir Rice's fault, but it is also not the fault of that officer, end quote, Williams added which earned him as many jeers as his previous remark had brought claps. By all accounts, the Cleveland police could not have handled the protests more differently than their colleagues in St. Louis, who suited up in riot gear and deployed tear gas and fired rubber bullets not only at violent looters, but also at peaceful protesters, local elected officials, 
and residents who had left their suburban homes to observe the ruckus happening outside. But not in Cleveland. In fact, after some morning commuters and media figures griped about the highway protests impeding traffic and causing, quote, inconvenience, end quote, Mayor Jackson responded by declaring, quote, that's the inconvenience of freedom, end quote. Quote, people are rightfully angry, end quote, Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly told me one afternoon as we sat in his city hall office, quote, in some parts of the city, the Cleveland Division of Police and the community need to have a relationship that is stronger, end quote. Behind him, on proud display, was the yellow flag of old Brooklyn, a West Side Cleveland neighborhood perhaps best known for its high number of law enforcement and public safety families, which lies in Kelly's district. And in police districts like those, where on some blocks it seems there's a proud supporter of the FOP affixed to at least one car in every other driveway, Kelly and others told me there are stronger relationships between officers and the community. Quote, in my district, most residents are on a cell phone basis with the district commander. We know the person who we're going to call, end quote, said Kelly. Quote, I think that if in every edge of the city we did as good a job as that, we'd be able to use those relationships as a vehicle to push for progress, end quote. I knew he was right, in large part because I knew people who had spent their entire lives in his district. My college roommate at Ohio University hailed from a police family in old Brooklyn. His aunts and uncles were cops, and his cousins, who would crash on our futon on nearly monthly visits to campus, all seemed to want to grow up to be Cleveland cops, and a few of them did. Much of Cleveland was not only skeptical of the ongoing protest, but also horrified that the city was in the midst of a crime wave. Things were getting even more dangerous for their officers, who was looking out for them. Quote, there has been so much negative publicity, we wanted our officers to know that the community is behind them, end quote. Mary Jo Graves, a police dispatcher in Cleveland, who also lived in Old Brooklyn, told me. Dismayed by what she saw as anti-police rhetoric, Graves put out a call on Facebook asking people to meet her in downtown Cleveland for a rally in support of police. She had hoped for 100 people. More than 4,000 showed up. Quote, I think people are finally fed up, end quote, said Graves whose, quote, sea of blue, end quote, rally was one of dozens of similar events that popped up in the months after Ferguson. Quote, our officers are good people who go out there to do good. Are there some things that need to be changed in law enforcement? Maybe. But it's important that our officers know that they have our community support, end quote. Not long after I finished interviewing the council president at City Hall, I found his colleague, Councilman Zach Reed, holed up in his cluttered third floor office in City Hall. Just moments after I entered his office, he pointed to a map laid out across the corner of his desk. It's a simple enough setup, a white poster board with the city's 17 districts outlined and dozens of red pushpins inserted, each representing a homicide this year. The council members get an email each Monday, tallying every homicide in the preceding week and telling them how it compares to that point in each of the four previous years. And for each new homicide, Reed inserts a red pushpin at the corresponding location on the map. Reed described it as a step toward thawing the numbness that many in Cleveland, including members of the council, have felt toward the violence that for years has been prevalent here. Violence both by police and by residents. Quote, it's in the DNA of not only the residents, but also the police, end quote, Reed told me. Quote, if we don't change that mindset, that it's us against them, then we're never going to fix this system, end quote. 
Every Clevelander knows the long roster of names and cases in which either a resident was killed by police or a local crime story went national in part because it persisted due to residents' unwillingness to call officers. The incident that most Clevelanders point to as their most horrifying anecdote of excessive force by police was the November 2012 shooting of Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams, whose miles-long police chase resulted in their death in a hail of 137 bullets fired by 13 of more than 100 officers involved in the chase. The pursuit began when the two drove past the police officer, who believed that they had fired a gun from their vehicle. He radioed for backup, and so began a chase that concluded with a sea of bullets in the school parking lot. One officer, Michael Brelo, emptied two separate 16-bullet clips and reloaded a third time before leaping onto the hood of the vehicle and firing bullets through the windshield and into Russell's and Williams' bodies. Both victims, it turned out, were unarmed. They had never fired the alleged gunshot that prompted the chase. Their car had backfired. Brelo would be charged... At Brelo would be charged with murder in the 137 bullets case, but a judge would ultimately rule that because it was impossible to say for sure that it was one of the bullets from his gun that had killed Russell and Williams, he cannot be convicted. It is cases like the 137 bullets shooting that lead community leaders to say, well, let's try that one more time, sorry about that. It is cases like the 137 bullet shooting that community leaders say have led to a deterioration of what little trust remained between the Cleveland community and the police. My dad would mention the case every single time I was home from school or back visiting after I had begun my career. Quote, 137 bullets, end quote, he disclaimed as he read the paper. Quote, and the one guy jumped up on the hood of the car, end quote, he'd say with exasperation crafting a gun with his fingers and mimicking the pow-pow with the fatal gunfire. Meanwhile, the DOJ concluded, the police department has, in many parts of Cleveland, abandoned the community policing that was once prevalent throughout this city. On page 50 of the report, the DOJ stated, quote, During our tours, we additionally observed that neither command staff nor line officers were able to accurately or uniformly describe what community policing is, end quote. Several current and former law enforcement officials insist that it hasn't always been this way, pointing to the 1990s when, thanks to Clinton administration grants for community policing, police departments in Cleveland and the surrounding suburbs have more officers devoted to foot and bike patrols and neighborhood beats. But when federal money dried up and the local police departments were hit with round after round of layoffs and budget cuts as the national, state, and local economies tanked in the mid-2000s, the community policing model became more stated policy than practice. Quote, a lot of times, the officers begin to believe that the citizens of color are the enemy. And at this point, many of them aren't getting out of their cars to get to know them, end quote, said James Copeland, a retired police commander who spent 27 years working in East Cleveland, a majority black community that borders the city. Quote, the departments aren't representative of the community, so they don't understand the community, end quote. While 53% of Cleveland's almost 400,000 residents are black, only about 387 of the department's 1,551 officers are, about 25%. Compounding the perception of the Cleveland police as an occupying force was the decision in 2009 by the Ohio Supreme Court to rule unconstitutional Cleveland's, quote, home rule, end quote, policy. Passed by voters in 1982, quote, home rule, end quote, had required police officers and firefighters, as well as other city employees, to reside within the city limits. While it had long been a point of contention with the police and fire unions, 
Many observers credited the policy with keeping a valuable working-class tax base in the city, even as other Midwestern metropolises saw their employees flee to the suburbs in the 1970s and 80s. While a still-recovering housing market has prevented mass exodus in the years since Cleveland's home rule was overturned, many officers who have been living within the city limits have since made the move out of the city where they work. Quote, The Supreme Court said that you don't have to live in the community, but if you're working in that community, then you're a resident of that community. You need to treat it that way, end quote, said Copeland. Quote, we all know about the blue code, but we need to let the people vent and then explain to the citizens about why we do what we do. We've got to talk to them first. We need to be transparent. That's called blue courage, end quote. In the meantime, pain continues to flow throughout Cleveland streets as gun violence claims the lives of more residents. As Reed and the other council members prepare for the upcoming Monday night meeting, they got their weekly homicide update. By this point in the previous year, the first week of December, there have been 83 murders. But this year, as the city was consumed in a fury of discussion about shootings and policing, three Clevelanders have been killed in the past week, including Amir Cotton, a 26-year-old black male in the city's 100th homicide of the year. By the end of 2014, homicides were number 102, an uptick from the previous year. And in 2015, homicides went up again to 118. Quote, it's time for us all to wake up, end quote, Reed told me at the end of our meeting as he placed his poster board behind his desk. Quote, we've all got to wake up, end quote. Okay, let's have a small reflection and then we'll end this episode. So let's first have a conversation about why just having more black cops in Cleveland would not fix the issues that exist in Cleveland. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I hope it's something that sticks in people's minds, how it's stuck in mind after I heard it the first time. And that is that the individual does not manipulate the system. The system manipulates the individual. And so it is not simply enough to put more black people in blue uniforms if the policies, procedures, and ideologies of the blue uniform remains the same. The only thing that changes now is you have black people who are oppressing other black people, exploiting other black people, falsely arresting, falsely uh, or violating the rights of other black people, patrolling disproportionate amounts in black neighborhoods and black communities. And I think the other part that has to be spoken about is that people don't become police officers for this, for these heroic deeds or these heroic feats. They become police officers to get a paycheck, to get insurance, to try to get a nice house, maybe try to go get a wife, make sure their kids go to a private school or to a nice school. So they become police officers for the same reason that people become electricians or people become plumbers or people become bus drivers or people work at McDonald's. They do it to get for employment. And when we put this, these false narratives onto police officers as if these people became police officers to be Superman or to be Spider-Man or to be Batman and to, to, to save the day and to be these saviors or the, these deliverers. It makes it so that people are viewing the actions these individuals do in some type of mythical light. And so they think when they shoot somebody or they beat somebody that they're doing it to protect other people or to serve the community in some type of a way. And in, tr and in honesty, they're doing it because that's just what their job calls for. No different than when you go to McDonald's and they put all your food in the bag or 
you called a plumber and he put the snake down the toilet. Like that's what they're, that is the policies and procedures of their jobs. Violence is a, a tool that is used for them to be able to get, reach a certain means. And, and so it's, we shouldn't be advocating for more black people to become involved in this institution of violence. What we should be advocating for is for more black people to become conscious of this institution of violence and for us to create orga- create organizations, create other institutions, create, create other entities that can, that can combat these institutions that exist now and these entities that exist now, and that can be more equitable and more equal and more just. And so we have to, it is a mistake to make the argument that we need more black police officers or that even just simply having more black police officers will change things. Because if you go back 30 years ago, there was less black police officers than there are now. And black people were still being killed by the police then and are being killed by the police now. And then another thing I think is important to to point out is they talked about this woman putting together a sea of blue rally to support the police. And I think we have to begin to critique people who support institutions like the police, who support institutions like prisons and jails, who support institutions like the army and the military and the Navy, these institutions that have not only a history of violence, oppression, exploitation, but that were created and are rooted in violence, exploitation, and oppression. And these institutions that have created so many victims, and these victims create more victims, you know, the concept of hurt people, hurt people. I was thinking today, you know, what if somebody was to ask me, do you, you know, I'm thinking about, somebody was to say, do you think people who commit rape belong in prison? And I was thinking, okay, so let's let's say I was to respond to them and I was to say no to them. That would come off as a jarring response to that question. But then my next response would be, would you put somebody who has committed rape in a building locked down with other rapists? <laughs> so, And then with the understanding that they're going to have to come out eventually. So you're going to take this person who's committed this heinous act and put him around more people who commit those heinous acts where, where that same heinous act may continue to happen. And then one day you're just going to release him and hope that he, he's a better person now, even though he's been around worse circumstances, he's been around worse individuals, he's been around a worse culture. And, you know, that, and that's why we have to dive deeper into these, these concepts and these issues and not just stick on the surface level. And most people who support the police, they support the police from a surface level uh, standpoint. They have not taken time to research and read and learn about police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. They have not taken time to go into prisons, to go into jails, to see what the 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 environment is like. They have not ate the food there, slept in the beds there. They have not talked to people who have been had lost decades of their lives for being falsely imprisoned. They have not talked to people who have been shot and beaten by police. They have not talked to the families of the people who have been violated by police in these plethora of ways. They support the police from a completely ignorant and naive standpoint. And a lot of times they do it because of racial lines and because of class lines. And so I just think that we and when so when we see people who are like that, we have to combat them. We have to combat people who are openly supporting oppressive institutions. We have to combat people openly who are openly supporting exploitative and racist institutions. We cannot afford to try to be 
politically correct or uh, is politically correct the right word or to be passive when it comes to to issues of injustice. Okay, so let's wrap this episode up. I know we're over 30 minutes. We will be back tomorrow to continue reading They Can't Kill Us All by Wesley Lowry. Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide you the opportunity to begin or further your journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll at you tomorrow at 8 a.m.